When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 72, The Arrival of William the Bastard. Usually, these stories start on a dark and stormy, rain-soaked beach, or maybe on a bright, sunlit day as boats land and the new challenger arrives, touching the sand of his new home with purpose or with pride. Destiny had called, and one man has answered, William the Bastard, Duke of Normandy. Well, that's how the Hollywood version would go, along with some forbidden love affair and an evil nemesis to play off of, and finally a grand battle scene where the new leader wins the day, killing his nemesis in the process by slicing his head off for all to see with all the gore that comes along with it, and in a great, grand, emotional crescendo of an ending that makes you happy and walk out of the theater delighted having seen this excellent production. Thus he would have fulfilled his destiny. Certainly there are aspects of that in this story of the Conqueror. His battle with Harold II, better known in the previous show as Harold Godwinson. Of course, in the modern day there's been a slow change in the historical questions and the way historians look at this story, and it starts to overtake that more pro-English idealism that grew out of this concept of a conqueror, as opposed to just being another petty usurper in the bag of competing interests. Let's be fundamentally honest here. This incident in 1066 isn't a battle of grand invasions followed by masterful strategy. This is basically a three-person war not dissimilar from the Game of Thrones and the battles that went on there in that production in the fact that you have a northern king, a central king, and a out-of-continent king who all arrive to fight over the throne. And in no time do we see this as sort of it's an after effect of what happened that we now call it the change, the rise of Norman England and this change of cultural context, which comes about because William brings over so many of his allies in taking the throne. If he had used Angles or Saxons or Welsh or Scottish, we wouldn't be talking about the Norman invasion the way we do now. And in a way, that makes sense. I mean, the other way to look at this is that in the Normans were actually Norsemen. So it's really a battle of two Vikings and an Anglo-Saxon for the throne of England. And of course, the Anglo-Saxon lost. You know, and that's kind of how it's looked at. But even in that, there's nuances, there's discussion points, there's interesting angles. 
And I'm going to leave it to another podcast to cover all that because, of course, we don't really talk about the English story here. And that's not really the focus of this podcast. But you have to understand how monumental this is now to understanding Welsh history going forward. The way we look at history in Wales from this point on changes dramatically. We've had a number of years where the borders of Wales have solidified. Probably, I'd say it's arguable, but you could argue that for about 300 years, the border hasn't tremendously changed between the border of the Welsh and the border of the Anglo-Saxons. And specifically since uh, the arrival of Alfred on the scene, there hasn't been great deals of change. Even Griffith only takes a small portion to his east into the Kingdom of Wales when he rules it. There isn't a massive surge in Welsh land grabs. It's tiny by comparison to what will happen with the Normans. And so in reality, that's one of the things that we're dealing with is that the boundaries of what was then understood to be the Welsh people starts to change. And the idea of the Welsh people as being separate starts to change. And it starts here and now. The minute that William walks in that beach, walks up the beach with his troops, arrives at Hastings and defeats Harold, we see a complete change and shift in how Wales and England deal with one another. And it's not going to be a good one if you're a supporter of Welsh independence. And again, we've already crossed the one chance that Wales had to be a separate nation and a united nation. So we're already starting to get beyond that. The Welsh are not, for example, featured heavily in this discussion of 1066. Their impact is considered to be at best a sideshow and at worst negligible. To the overall story of the mighty William who defeated Harold at Hastings as Harold took the so-called arrow to the eye, which even that argument is continues to be discussed, where understanding what happened and how it happened has been so convoluted and so argued about that nobody really knows fundamentally what happened. We have a thought and a theory, but until we can find Harold's bones and look at his skull and say, oh, that's where the arrow hit, so obviously that's what killed him, we don't know. And of course, there's talk about him being trampled, of him being, his body being physically mangled, so you could never really understand what's happened to him. And in all of that, as I said, the Welsh story is kind of an afterthought. It's kind of an after effect. And the reason, of course, because of this, the fundamental thing that derives this is that the Welsh story fundamentally has reached an impasse. We have gone backwards, not forwards. The fall of Griffith to Harold actually sets off everything that happens here and now. It is almost the beginning point of where things go badly, both for the Welsh and for Harold himself, to be honest, because it's not long after this that his own brother turns against him and starts seeking outside help to try and take down Harold, first seeking it from William, Duke William, and then going up north and talking to Harold Haldreda, who is perceived as being the next big threat and his claims to the throne are seen as just as valid as say williams 
And so you have these three forces that are now going to combine into a fight. And Harold, for whatever reason, decides that the northern threat is much worse than what's coming from William. He had waited a long time for William to land, and William takes forever. I mean, the decision to start this invasion comes early. I mean, Harold is the second is made king in January of 1066. William is already constructing his fleet by the spring. And he doesn't leave France until October. And if you've ever been to Britain, October is not the greatest time to start heading into a, a crossing of the English Channel. And certainly not the greatest time to land and start fighting because the weather can be iffy and things can be miserable and all of that. Whereas if, and of course it gets dark earlier. So there's that combination of things. And in this era, you don't usually have battles in darkness because Typically, campaigning season is through the growing season, and you don't want to fight when it's dark. You want to fight when it's light, so you can see your enemy, you know who everybody is. I mean, you run into some guy with a sword in the dark, you might kill him because you don't see who it is until too late. So that was not something they tried to do. So most of these battles are happening in the daytime. They're generally happening in the summer, and so it's strange that this decision, and I'm sure, which has been analyzed to death, is made at that point. Of course, convenient to that is three weeks before this, you have Harold fighting Harold, just to be confusing, um, the king fighting the king of Norway, and at Stamford Bridge up in York area. And so maybe William sees this as now his finally it's his time to attack when things are at their weakest, when Harold's distracted dealing with the northerners and maybe he figured if he came in it would be all safe and clear and he could take a lot of the south before harold could come back of course harold does come back and he marches on a on a fast march down and faces his destiny as it were to go back to our original discussion point so as all this is going on meanwhile wales is split into factionalism again it's got separate kingdoms again. Griffith's death has put a damper on their control and their ability to influence things. The Welsh uh, are busy still conflicting with one another rather than being able to deal with the outside threats. Uh, the Murfinians and the descendants of Griffith are actually controlling the north and the south. And of course, we know that Harold wanted that. That was his way of kind of keeping the Welsh out of trouble, for lack of a better word, is to keep them against themselves. And this tendency will continue to go forward right up to Edward I. And I think that is a strategy and a tactic that's used to great success by these kings from England in, in that the Welsh tendency to be focused in on each other and, and fighting amongst themselves to their advantage. And this is no different in this situation. There's no sense at any point that there is a real feeling of that these forces will be able to get along and unify against the English. And that's part of the problem. And we'll find that what typically will end up happening here is that the forces in the north under Blethenep Sinfin will unite with Harald Haldrata, the northern Viking Norwegian king, to try and take on Harald. And that, of course, will go badly for all sides involved. 
Um, of course, Blethyn survives this and ends up and continues to be king for quite a while. He is the half-brother of Griffith, who, through his mother, Angharad, so he's not really a direct descendant to the throne. He was kind of the guy who got it after the fact. But he still has claim on it based on his connections to that family. And his alliance initially with Elfgar of Mercia uh, would make him a threat to Harold, and then his alliance with his brother Tostig and, of course, Harold Haldrata made him even more of a threat. And, of course, they would come to ally with them to try and fight for the crown. Um, and even after that, they would rejoin Saxon resistance to William. So they pretty much consistently fought whoever was leading the English to try and gain, I would guess, to some extent, a measure of revenge, expansion of their kingdom, and trying to return Wales to a unified state. But they never really were able to do that. And because of that, Blethyn doesn't really succeed. And all of his plans and machinations don't seem to come to anything important, at least not for Gwyneth and certainly not for Wales in, as a whole. The southern Murfinians wouldn't have had much to do with him and probably wouldn't have thrown their lot in with him very often because of this tendency of these groups to disagree. And in all likelihood, that would continue to be the case going forward. They really didn't like one another very much. And you can see that in the way that things had gone up till then. Obviously, the Murfinians were part of the reason why Griffith was killed. So there wouldn't have been a great deal of love loss between the groups, I would think. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. In fact, Meredith, Ap Owen, Ap Edwin, the grandson of Edwin, of course, who was a big part of the Murfinian line, um, had, in effect, thrown his lot in with the Normans as time goes on. And he becomes someone who doesn't really oppose the encroachment of the Normans. He doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about that. And in reality, becomes rewarded for that, much like Doithbarth had done in the past, where even under Huell, they continued to play this role of being people who made accommodations with the English, no matter who the English, in quotes, at this point are. And it served them well up until it didn't. <laughs> Whereas in Gwyneth, they consistently opposed the King of England and consistently were the resistance to the King of England. Even when they showed honor and fealty to him, there was still this sense that they were just one minute away from stabbing him. And there was still this sense of resistance. And this separation between these two groups on this front certainly would have created a lot of animosity between the two. And the fact that maybe Maraduth saw where the things were going and just decided it wasn't worth the effort to try and fight the English and consequently the Normans. Maybe it was a perception that making agreements is easier than trying to go into battle against them. And of course, through his reign, that worked okay. Later on, it works a lot less. But for that moment in time, he avoids a lot of the problems that will come the way of his descendants down the road. And realistically, that is one of the choices that these Welsh kings had. They could either seek to make agreements or they could be the people who fight and resist and try and overcome the English, try and stop them from pushing forward, from pursuing their advantages, from creating, you know, a, a narrower and narrower border as the Normans eventually do. And so that's kind of the two degrees of the way the Welsh dealt with 1066. And because of that, this is why I say they, they don't have or aren't perceived to have a great influence on the proceedings because, well, first off, because Harold Haldrada was unsuccessful, that effectively he won a couple of battles before he himself was defeated and the Welsh were able to escape before it cost them everything. But realistically, Blethyn and his allies didn't really come to any achievement, didn't really conquer or hold any territory out of the deal, and it probably didn't serve them very well. I think what we'll see as we go forward is that neither method works terribly well against the Normans. The Normans have a totally different sense of how to deal with the Welsh. They will bring forward 
very aggressive tendencies which the Welsh will have to deal with, at least in this early going. We'll see William put some of his most ambitious uh, nobles up against the Welsh border, and they will be the ones who effectively start to seize territory from the Welsh. And we'll talk way more in depth of this as we go forward, but for now, I want to end this with basically the discussion that if you were a king of Wales at this point, what do you do? If you're a king of Gwyneth or a king of Powys or a king in Doithbarth, is it better to negotiate? Is it better to be aggressive, negotiate with the ones you want to win because they'll recognize you? Or is it better to make deals with the biggest and baddest and meanest bully on the block and trying to avoid conflicting with them, trying to keep your kingdom safe? I mean, this is the same problem that Britain as a whole had dealing with the Romans, wherein some groups tried to treat with them, some groups tried to resist them, and they all basically fell to them to the point where, there, with the exception of the very north, where the Picts were settled, there wasn't anything that any of these tribes were able to do successfully to defeat the Romans from taking over what amounted to Britain. And much in that same way, we'll have the same thing happen with the Normans. They will come in and they will slowly absorb Wales. They will then turn their sights to Scotland and, much like the Romans, fail to take Scotland. But the reality of it is, is that again, you have this major invasion force pushing itself on the existing populations, taking control very quickly, changing the culture, changing ways that the English and eventually the Welsh do things. Uh, we'll see that in castle building and coinage, in the way the Welsh deal with all sorts of different things, including the military, will change because of this Norman force that comes in. Do they change in great and dramatic ways? Possibly not. But castle building as a whole didn't really happen until the Normans came over and started building Mott and Baileys everywhere. And, of course, the entire dimension of what we consider to be Wales is defined by the Norman invasions and the eventual Plantagenet invasion that happens in the 12th and 13th centuries and the eventual conquering of Wales. As we go forward, these things will continue to be front and center to the discussion, the way that the Welsh have to interpret and deal with this invasion force and the results of what it does, this usurper and his group are literally the reason why Wales stays fractured and slowly sinks into being not an independent entity. And so we have to be cognizant that 1066 may be a significant day in English history. It's an important day in English history and should be talked about, should be looked at and examined. And while we won't go into massive details in this podcast, it still has huge ramifications for Wales. It's very important, much like the landings of Julius Caesar before the first century AD. And then, of course, Claudius in the last, in the beginning of the, the first century AD, those things will have massive conflicting and one could argue about whether they're terrible or terrific influences on the Welsh population going forward. Of course, in both instances, the Welsh kept certain things even as all of this was happening. But 
you will see some tendencies and some descriptions that are going to sound awfully similar to the way the Romans perceived the Britons at this point in time and talked about the Ordovis and the Silures in that period. And now we're going to talk about the Norman perspective on Wales. We'll start to talk about guys like Gerald of Wales and all of these people who are then looking at the Welsh both as descendants of Welsh people, but also predominantly Normans. And the way they analyze, the way they think of the Welsh has a lot of similarity to the way the Romans were talking about them. And probably mostly because it's a propaganda piece rather than it being fact. And that's something to always keep in mind. As we look at these sources, they're biased across both sides. They have reasons why they're doing things. We can't forget that. But at the same time, this is a very pivotal moment in the history of the Welsh and it will have consequences that go on to this day. So 1066, it's just one of those years that is always going to be important to the history of Britain. And uh, with that, thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions, comments, and concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at at Welsh History Pod. I do try and respond as quickly as I can. And also on Facebook, I've been talking with a few of you about different things. Uh, and just as an aside, people have been asking me if I've seen Britannia, the, the new, uh, the new, uh, Sky Atlantic production that's supposed to be on Amazon Prime. It hasn't come to Canada yet, so I haven't had a chance to see it. I mean, I guess there are other ways of doing that, but. And so because of that, I have not seen it yet. I know from a historical standpoint, there's a lot of shaky stuff going on there. Um, but I don't want, I want to give it a chance to actually absorb it and see it and kind of think about what I think of it. Once I've done that, I will let you know and maybe even do a little show on it and just discuss it. But I don't want to precursor that by making a bunch of decisions based on what my preconceived notions are by reading other people. So when I do that, I will let you know and I will get back to you all on that. And certainly I think it's worth talking about because there is some usage of specifically Welsh in the show to be kind of representative of Brythonic and in the discussions about how the perception in the in the show is of the Celtic populations in Britain at the time. And of course, it's a fictional production, so there's going to be lots of vagrancies out of it because of that. So keeping all that in mind, like I said, I'll go in with an open, open viewpoint and see what I think of it. I'm sure a lot of you will have lots of opinions on it. Be sure to share it with me, and I'll be tremendously interested to see what you all think. As I said, I've heard both sides of the argument about good or bad of it, but I think that's the case for all of these shows. You have to understand that in those perspectives of these shows that they'll always be not good enough for a historian. It's really difficult to make, and I don't claim to be a historian, but I know enough historians to know that they kind of find the Hollywood version of history to be speculative at best and disserving at worst. So that will certainly come into this question as we look at these kind of programs. But fascinating to see them. I'm glad they're doing them. I hope they do more because in all honesty, there's a lot of history that could be covered that they just don't do. Like to me, I've argued for years that if they did something on the Dark Ages in 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 Britain or the early medieval period, to more rightly call it, I think it would be a fascinating period because there's lots of material you can mine out of that. And certainly 
there's tons of interesting and fascinating and mythological people and it doesn't have to all be about arthur and we don't have to have strange shows where arthur is totally not arthur in any sense or fashion the way he's been described at any point until like the victorian era basically uh so you can do things like that. You can reach out. And I think it's a fascinating discussion to have. And I wish they would do more of it because I think if they did, it would actually serve to teach people about the history of their country. And for those who aren't from the country to learn more about it. I mean, it's, it's an important way of sharing stories that are fundamental to the way we perceive life today. No different than, you know, the overabundance of things that'll come out about 1066 at times and how, you know, the, the various scholars and story makers will perceive that. Well, there's tons of that in, in the early medieval period, which certainly could be covered and would certainly be fascinating and have a lot of overtones and similarities to things like Game of Thrones. So before I rant on too much more, I, I just want to thank you all for listening. And be sure to check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. And until next time, everyone, we'll see you later. Bye. Edge of the Abyss Creations is a proud sponsor of the Welsh History Podcast, your one-stop shop for unique jewelry, paintings, and other crafty creations. You can find us at facebook.com slash edgeoftheabyss1. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.